and welcome. I am your host, Emigan Awardner, and in my nearly 20-year career as a beauty and health writer, I have interviewed a lot of people, supermodels, entrepreneurs, authors, celebrities, and doctors, and many of these conversations had a real impact on me, and I'd come away feeling inspired, excited, informed, and really empowered, and at the back of my mind, I'd always think, I wish I could just publish the tape so people could really feel that conversation. Well, on this podcast, you get to feel the conversation. I talk with experts, guests, and a few friends who I hope will inspire, inform, and empower you, and maybe also challenge you, whether you're looking for self-help, self-improvement, beauty advice, health insights, business know-how, or just some good old-fashioned life advice and a bit of a laugh. It's all here. Welcome to the show. Has anyone ever said to you, life ain't fair? I'm sure we've all heard that expression and maybe you've had it said to you when the chips were down or when things just weren't going your way. Is fairness something that happens to us or is it something we can put out into the world? Or perhaps it's both. Well, that's what author and speaker David Badanis and I discuss in this episode as it's a topic he has taken a deep dive into in his own work. I feel so lucky that this podcast affords me the opportunity to speak with people who are so knowledgeable. And this conversation with David is a great example of that. He references it in the show, but on our video call, he was in a room surrounded by books. And it occurred to me after we finished chatting that even if I attempted to read everything he has ever read, which meant he was able to bring so much life to this conversation, it would take me years, decades perhaps, to do so. So it feels like such a privilege to get to learn from David and all my guests, in fact, and benefit from their experience and their expertise. And I actually came across David because he has a book called The Art of Fairness. And when I saw it, it really appealed to me because on the surface, it seemed to be a book that would deconstruct the qualities of fairness so they could then be applied in the real world. And I thought, great, someone's broken it down for me. I can finally figure out, see what it looks like, understand what it feels like and go and share it in my own life. And it is an investigation of fairness via case studies. But what it really reveals is that there is no blueprint for fairness and that fairness can look different in every situation you find yourself in. However, what one can conclude perhaps is that fairness gets caught up with being nice. And if you've ever heard the expression, nice guys finish last, the call to be fair might not be so alluring. After all, who wants to be a doormat or seen as a pushover in a world where being the opposite is associated with success and is celebrated? So in this episode, David and I discuss why nice guys do finish last, but why there are many advantages to decency, how being fair can still be boundaried and not mean that you slip into being a pushover, the benefits of being fair and decent and how encouraging and enabling the people around you is good for everyone. And he gives a few examples of how and why. The reality that power slips into arrogance and the uncomfortable truth that in some environments, bullying works. Why fairness needs to start with the individual, be fair to yourself before you can be fair to others, and the role the ego plays in fairness and how difficult though it may be, putting the ego to one side and communication can be so beneficial in the long term, but also in the short term. Why being generous doesn't equal being nice. The stories of Faust and also we talk about the film Wall Street and how they play into this perception of fairness and, and, and being decent in the modern world as perhaps not being a positive thing. Why, if you assume the world is going to be fair, you might be disappointed. How greed gets in the way of fairness. We come back to Wall Street again. Why social media is not a natural habitat for fairness and kindness and so much more. I was fascinated. I hung on every word that David said, actually. I found him a really fascinating, generous, 
guest and as you will hear he just he brought so many wonderful anecdotes so much insight to the conversation so without any further ado let's get to it and obviously the links to the book uh, the the art of fairness will be in the show notes but for now please join me in welcoming david Badanis onto the emma gunn show david Badanis, welcome to the emma gunn show how are you uh, delighted to be here my dear um you are an author a speaker uh, a futurist, which I would like to unpick with you at some point during this conversation, and also a storyteller and quite an amazing storyteller, it has to be said. And I was very lucky to come across this book that I'm holding up, The Art of Fairness, The Power of Decency in a World Turned Mean. And as soon as I saw this, I thought, oh, finally, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. The world is so mean right now. And Someone's written a book that tells us how not to be mean. <laughs> and is that exactly what you tried to do? Exactly. We know that there's all these terrible people in, the, in, in business and politics. We, we see them on the news. We come across and we read about them. And we try to be, you know, decent people ourselves, at least uh, some of the time. I'm very good, by the way, at passive aggressive. So I'm not, I don't always succeed at decent. Um, and it's nice. Wouldn't it be nice to know that this decent way can sometimes succeed? Um, so I, I went through and I tried to find, are there really reasonable, decent people? It doesn't have to be being a softie. If you're too much of a softie, you know the famous phrase, nice guys finish last. It's true. If you're merely nice and polite, you know, they, they always say teenage girls have to watch out for it. To be honest, teenage boys too. If you merely do what everybody says and you're decent and polite, you'll often be left in last place. But does that mean you have to go to the other extreme and be some sort of bullying, Machiavellian, uh, slimy jerk? And some people would say, yes, I look at the Trump family. It succeeded for them. It, it, it often works. But is there a path in between? And uh, if I sit in a, in a little room in North London saying, oh, I think there is a path in between, why would you believe me? But if I say, you know, here's 10 really interesting people from recent history, and they've done it, they've succeeded that way, here's how, who knows, you might buy the book at retail and hardcover. <laughs> okay so how did you so that is what the book is essentially it's profiling these stories it's case studies that show by lived experience the benefits of being decent and how oh. did and how did you how were you able to pick those 10 people and were you very specific about what their stories had to be like did you have a lot of people to choose from or was it slim pickings <laughs> well, it, 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 indeed, there's many fields that if you if you push closely, a person's not as wonderful as they might as their press agents might want them to appear. The, one of the things that took longest in the book was indeed um, trying to find the right people. So at first, I would try to find really interesting stories, but they might not be relevant. And then there's some stories that are sort of uh, that are nice, but I didn't want to have the book be just of super duper people. So if there was a book saying, "Well, Nelson Mandela was very nice," or "Mother Teresa was very nice," doesn't help. The other thing I tried to watch out for was people who, they can be you know, reasonable and decent and succeed because they're spectacular people. So uh, um, what's an example? Um, Meryl Streep, the actress. She's a great actress. And if she goes for an audition, she would probably make it. She's a really good actress in a range of stuff. Uh, acting students are famous for sabotaging each other because most acting students, they're, they're okay. They're, they're not gonna be stunning. And if there is an audition for a certain role or type, uh, it's, it's been, it's been uh, uh, heard, I, I, I spent time with at people at the Central School and at RADA and stuff, that in the old days when posters were put up, they would tear down the posters because they didn't want other people to know. 
because in an open competition, how could they guarantee winning? That's one reason newsreaders are, um, with some exceptions, uh, so not all, but a certain number of newsreaders are horrible human beings. Turns out it's not that hard to be a newsreader. You have to look pleasant and be able to uh, read uh, words of more than one syllable without dribbling saliva uncontrollably if there's a teleprompter in front of you. And it turns out there's maybe 100,000 people who can do that. Of those 100,000 people, six get to be newsreaders. Uh, again, there's a few exceptions. There are some who are like really decent people. And there's others who are able to win a, a, a secret competition against 100,000 others. Um, so those people don't always get into this book. Do you know, it's making me think about, um, I started out my career as a beauty journalist, as a beauty writer on a magazine, on a glossy magazine. And it was the job that everyone would say, a, a million girls would kill for your job. And B, it's just writing about lipstick. That would be the, the thing that would be thrown at you the most. Like it doesn't require any skill. Um, but yet there are only 30 of us. <laughs> oh, correct. But also the, the thing about that job is it does require skill. So you have to be like, uh, as you know, a busy reporter. You, you, have to know no, no, no. I say this because I've written about lipstick and other things like that in my old book, The Secret House. And so I really, really, really into that. Uh, the, where this would apply in a magazine would be somebody... Like, like the person who walks around celebrities. Now you can have a decent person. One of my sisters had a job like that. She would be like the personal assistant to various uh, celebrities. And she, she was actually a really good person. She did a range of things. She did that for a few years, but it turns out it's a relatively easy job and it's very glamorous. You fly, you fly first class with them. You get to tell people, you know, you want the espresso right away in a certain a ceramic cup and you don't need any special skill. So in your field, if somebody, I don't know, paid no attention to like, I don't know, current things about working practices or about the chemicals involved or about the latest fashions from Italy versus blah, 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 they, they would lose out. You have to be on your toes. But, and so you have to be relatively good. I'm sure there was a certain amount of backbiting, but in a field that thousands of people to do it and only a few are chosen, then the opportunity is really there for being horrible, which by the way, doesn't mean all those fields are horrible. The book explains why there can actually be advantages to not being horrible. Well, um, okay. Let's talk about if someone's listening to this and they just think, well, I would just clearly, if I want to live, not just uh, fair myself, but if I wanted to avoid unfairness, I just wouldn't become a newsreader or a beauty writer. Can you avoid, could, can you literally signpost, don't go here if you want fairness? Well, some fields uh, make it harder than others. But what I was struck by is even in, um, uh, really competitive fields, or even fields where a lot of people will go in, uh, certain advantages to decency really come out. So um, I, I spoke a while, for a while with um, Danny Cohn, who is the, I, I, don't know if he, I don't think he was head of the BBC, but he was head of like, uh, I think BBC One, BBC Two for a while, and came up with all these great shows. And he said, yeah, there's a lot of people who yell and scream in creative meetings, and it and makes great TV. I mean, they, they film it, but it doesn't really make the creative meetings going well. If you're a really obnoxious person, uh, people are scared to raise their hand and come in with tentative ideas. So it actually doesn't work that well. And also, if you're really nasty and undermine people, if you're powerful, they'll go along with what you say, but you know what you get back? Resentment. Suppose you encourage, enable, and help people, even if you can't give somebody a job, you can't cast them in a job, you say, you know what? You're not right for this. I think you'd be right for these other things. Or, you know what? You have to work on your poise or work on this or that. Come back in a while. And I really, I'm not just saying that, a specific appointment with me in a few months, what you get back, you don't get resentment, you get gratitude. And gratitude is one of the most powerful uh, things. Think of the people in your life you felt gratitude for. You go the extra mile for them. 
right? So that person who is decent and fair to you, you have gratitude back. It's a wonderful tool. It's much better than resentment. Think of those horrible monsters like Harvey Weinstein and stuff, who, you know, the Hollywood producer, who's a big fat thug, who is like, blech, horrible person. Anyways, nobody liked him. And on his way down, you saw it. Even his own brother turned against him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm shuddering. I met met him twice. What was he like? Well, I mean, I did. I mean, yeah. I say I met him. I, I did not register because I was just a lowly minion. But what did was but what was interesting to me is how uh, other very successful, very wealthy men treated him. It was very much. Um, they really liked each other. There was a lot of back slapping and it, yeah. you know what I mean? I was like, oh God, okay. That's a, an environment I will never know much about, but he clearly had, people were drawn to him mm -hmm. without a shadow of a doubt. Power does a lot. I mean, so power can easily slip over a very thin membrane into arrogance. Plus he had enormous patronage. Of the few times I've been around people with, with a lot of patronage, it's really hard to act normally. The notion that somebody can just tilt their finger and they can transform your career or life for the better. It's very hard to be honest, which ties in with, with another, one of the advantages of being decent or being fair, whatever you want to call it, is that you, um, you get more accurate knowledge, you get more accurate information. A bully will maybe keep people quiet, but is often the last person to know what's happening either in a family or in a company or in, a, in an office a division. So if you can listen, but without ego, if you can put your ego a little bit to the side, um, which is hard because everybody, we, you know, we love our ego. It's hard. We, we bring it out and we hug it. But if you can listen without ego, you get more better information flow. So just think what we have already. If you, if you give in a sort of generous way, you can get gratitude coming back. If you listen without ego, you get extra information coming back. This is not bad. So it's interesting though, you said, uh, you said if you give generously, if you are generous, but it's not about being nice. That's where the yeah. distinct... Yeah, uh, nice is a pleasant surface on top of it. Um, so think of the people that you really uh, respect and would be keen to work with in life. You don't have to love them. You don't actually even have to like them. It's nice if you like them, but you don't have to like them. You have to respect them and for them to be fair. Think of somebody who you might really like love or like, but they're clueless. They couldn't help you in the work that you're doing. It's not good enough. Or think of somebody who's maybe really seems likable, but is a little Machiavellian jerk, you know, twisting the knife and you can't trust them and stuff, like our famous newsreaders. Um, that's not great either, even if they might be charming in other settings. So there's a, what, what, one of the people I talk about in the book is the guy who is responsible for build, building the Empire State Building in just 13 months. Can I say... I've had a leak, I have a blue bedroom, I, not my main bedroom, it's a sort of like a guest bedroom, and there's been a leak in it. We've had the leak for at least 14 months. Now, <laughs> this bedroom, although it's a nice bedroom, is significantly smaller than the Empire State Building. <laughs> and, and this guy created the whole Empire State Building in 13 months from beginning to end, it's very impressive. And this was uh, like 1930 before computer assisted design. Now this guy was grumpy. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't really huggy and he rump rump, but he was dead fair. And he, he did say, oh, okay, let's double the salaries for all the construction workers. And if the winds are high, they don't have to go out on those uh, beams and poles. You know, there's a famous photograph you may have seen of a bunch of construction workers from New York of the time sitting on a big girder eating their sandwiches and stuff. That wasn't from the Empire State Building. Those people were doing it there because they didn't have cafeterias uh, high up. So they had to find a place off to the side to eat cold, soggy, disgusting, packed lunches from home with long working hours. On the Empire State Building, the guy get, had subsidized canteens 
and toilets, free toilets, but subsidized canteens about every three or four, four floors going up. That was wonderful. Now he wasn't naive. Um, if you're really generous, some people are gonna take advantage of you. So you have to be generous, but audit. So he'd have like accountants who had a terrific upper body strength. You don't tend not to think of accountants with terrific <laughs> upper body strength, unless you saw the film, The Accountant with, uh, um, who's it? Um, ben Affleck. With Ben Affleck. Now he was a dishy, I'm straight and he was a dishy accountant. Um, you know, it's very I would rare. like him to look at my, my books. <laughs> well, darling, I hope you get a chance for him to look at your books. Um, <laughs> <laughs> these accountants would clamber up the Empire State Building and check that picks and shovels weren't going walkabies. They would check that the people were there doing their time. And the, 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 the workers realized, okay, this guy's keeping us honest. He's not, he's not like, I don't know, a rich kid from headquarters who we can take advantage of. He's a guy who'd been in construction for years, but he was generous and fair. So the fact that he was grumpy is a lot better than somebody who like, I compare him in the chapter with somebody from a later uh, business thing who was really friendly, but was a lying duplicious so-and-so. So we don't mind working for somebody as long as they're uh, um, uh, con uh, competent and uh, and fair. Do you know I when I was when Go I was ahead. reading about uh, Empire, the Empire State, it reminded me about. So I got into magazines and started working on big magazines in two thousand and three. So this was a long time after the golden age of the supermodel, but it didn't mm -hmm. take long for me to hear about those ten day trips to the private islands and how those 10 day trips, you'd do one shoot and it was incredible. And you'd hear all these incredible stories. And as I got into the industry, you'd hear about, you know, uh, wallets are being tightened, the purse strings are being shortened, all of that sort of stuff. And as I uh, sort of grew up a little bit in the industry, it definitely became, I, to your point about what you said earlier, the resentment, because people were being expected to do the exact same job, produce the exact same quantity and quality of work on much smaller budgets with much less sort of fun alongside it, you know, no Correct. more 10 day trips. And yeah, I definitely would say that that tone of resentment was evident. Yes, and, and that brings everything down. If you've ever been, God forbid, in a poisonous relationship, you know, somebody comes over and says, hey, is Phil there? You say, he might be on the, his side of the room. There's a chalk line down the middle. You know, if you say, right, you're gonna be like that. Okay, I'll be like this. Or in a company, when you decide to work for rule, you know, you've gone the extra mile, you've done some stuff and they're dismissive of it. You say, that's it, I'm not gonna be like that. Uh, the famous passive aggressive. And there's a reason people are like that. So you can have one whole equilibrium. You can have a whole industry that's like it. We're being pressured by the private equity people, by the management consultants, that all these things are taken away and squeezed. It's not like the fun world of Ugly Betty where you get the, the room with all the dash, you know, you know to, to give away. And the thing is, it's unnecessary. Even if budgets aren't huge, you can often still have a little bit of fun and you can have some perks and stuff. So you can have, and, and if you do that, it's not just games, but, you know, fair, be honest about when there can be promotions and what responsibility you can take. People will often respond well to that. You'll get that extra burst and you get a creativity uh, coming out. While in a negative one, it's not just when an industry is shrinking, you can shrink. I mean, some families, when they lose money, they become uh, really nasty. They backbite and attack. Others pull together. And they say, you know what? I've never been as close to you, darling, as now that we, you know, we have to, we really have to economize together. You know, let's let, let's cook this stuff from scratch. Um, so you can you can be positive. It, it's easier, of course, if money is going up, but not going too high. Also, the, the, the big thing about money, uh, uh, Griff Reese Jones, the uh, 
uh, the comic who ended up with a production company, so became rich. Somebody once asked him, what's it like, what's it like being rich? And he said, can I tell you the truth? They said, yeah, yeah, go ahead. It's just like being poor, but with a real lot more money. Um, <laughs> and what he meant was you still have the same thing. If, uh, if you're a little bit withdrawn inside uh, and you get cold, if people offer you love, you'll still get cold if they offer you love. If you're um, uh, garrulous, you, if you're too garrulous, uh, nobody will restrain, will, will restrain you. So it sort of, it takes off the limits, it reveals what's there. But what's there kind of remains, at least after age about 25 or so. When I was going through uh, the book and your talks, I was thinking about actually the damage of the 1980s and what that has done to how people treat each other, both in the workplace and out of the workplace. And I always come back to, it's funny how many times it comes uh, into this kind of thinking, is the film Wall Street. <laughs> yes. And whether we glamorized basically being cutthroat and that seeped into how people treat each other. Um, or do you think it was already there before? Uh, you're entirely right. It's led from the top and it's led from important models. Turns out economic growth, so the 1980s was the era of uh, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, in Britain, Ronald Reagan in America. Turns out economic growth in Britain in the 1980s was not that much different from economic growth on the continent, you know, in France and Germany and the Scandinavian countries in the same time. Uh, there's a story in the conservative press in Britain that that wasn't the case, but the figures, they, they're kind of similar. So it's two different ways to get to the same end result. And the British one encouraged a real lot of nastiness and selfishness. Now, again, remember we were saying earlier about the uh, excitement if you're with uh, powerful people or people with patronage. So uh, in the film Wall Street, the Wall Street, the, the, that film, it, it was well constructed and it resonates because it's basically, it's the Faust story. You're offered temptation, what will you sell um, for worldly success? Will you sell your soul? Will you sell your principles? Will you even, in the case of that film, will you sell out your family? Will you sell out your own dad for the sake of this worldly success? And you get the, I don't know, this glamorous apartment and people looking up to you and stuff. And many people will. And it's a shame it brings out that worst part of, uh, uh, the worst part of us. The film at the very end has a sort of a twist and says, oh, by the way, all these wonderful, delightful things we showed well, you shouldn't really enjoy them because you might not be happy at the end. Nobody pays any attention to that. They think, wow, if I do these sorts of things, I get these perks. But uh, Griff jones line is true. You still carry yourself along wherever you are. And again, so some people would say, well, David, I understand that. I, I'll try really hard not to be a jerk, but I grew up poor. I really want a decent place. Or some people say, I don't even want to show off place. Do you know how hard it is to be middle-class these days to have like, a place that looks like a pleasant, I don't know, a shared flat like in Friends or Seinfeld or something. That's not cheap. I, I simply want that. Uh, can I really get there by being fair? And I suppose the point from the book is by being merely nice and polite, you probably won't. If you're only that, you'll be stomped over. There's times when you have to like, you know, step forward and make suggestions and, and all that. But you don't have to be horrible that these things about, hey, Let's show what a cohesive team working together can do. We'll come up, think of some of the good startups, not the terrible ones. It's like a lovely um, uh, esprit de corps. Uh, people are, uh, are pulling together, they have enthusiasm, and you, some of them succeed very well. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, do you think, so just referencing the 80s vibe again, do you think that that is a legacy that we are, we're going to see change? And do you think when you were saying then about, um, 
uh, you being nice, you might get trump, trumped over, uh, but you don't have to be a jerk either. You don't have to be a jerk either. I'm sorry, I couldn't find the word either then. How very weird. So in the middle, is the middle being fair and decent? Is that yeah. how you walk the line between uh, not getting trampled over and also not being a jerk? But equally, yeah. is it about your legacy? Is it about thinking about the long game and how you want people to see you? And well, that whole so, quote about, it's not how what you said, it's how you made people feel. Uh, there's definitely a lot to that. And, and there's two ways of thinking about that. One is for some people, the legacy after their life is means a lot. Um, for some people, or, or you might say, oh, when I get old, but what's kind of, so, and I think that's true. You know, some people think, oh God, I've made it. I have this big thing, but nobody likes me. The end of Godfather part two, uh, the, the son of the Godfather, he's all alone. He's gotten exactly what he wants. And you hear a shot in the distance of a, a spoiler alert of his brother being killed. Um, and, but then the camera goes back. He's all alone in this perfect room. Well, that's not fun. Um, uh, so you could say, yes, at the end, you it's nicer to have had a, a reasonable time. But I suppose another uh, point is that along the way, you can do it and get the satisfaction. If you're like really horrible at work, here's an example. Suppose you uh, go on a date with somebody who tries to be really nice to you and they seem really nice and they have these perks and stuff. And then, you know, the waiter in the days when there's restaurants, which I hope will be uh, back too soon, and the waiter asks a question or is maybe at the wrong time and the person snarls at them, really snappy and snarly and stuff. And you realize that's what the person is like. That's what they're like underneath. And, you know, maybe one point if you have a bad hair day or you have the wrong makeup or uh, this or that, that might come towards you. And that person carries that around. And also many of the uh, traits that we have, we're not born with. They develop through practice. You know, you can practice being um, type of exercise, you get better at it. You can practice like being a, a back and forth attitude and conversation versus like a bossy, nasty attitude. So you can get habituated to a certain kind of unpleasant type in an unpleasant job. So one of the bad consequences isn't just for your legacy. It isn't just for the people around you. It's for you. Because when you wake up, you got to live with yourself. This is one reason Samuel Johnson in the 1700s, uh, long before modern psychotherapy said, why, you know, why do people drink? They drink to escape themselves. And the same thing with listening to super loud music or driving a car way too fast, drinking or cocaine or whatever, it's an escape. Um, and if you're comfortable, you don't have to escape. Yeah, oblivion. Someone once said to me, people, people don't, if people drank to excess because they like the taste, then everyone would be getting drunk on strawberry margaritas. The reason, yes. the reason they uh, get drunk on whiskey is because there is oblivion at the bottom of that bottle. Yeah, exactly, and oblivion, and because Either, you're, either you realize that the way you've been living violates a standard, or you've been living in a way that it doesn't really create warm and sincere friends. I remember in the film Wall Street, the script writers were good. The, the woman who was really nice, the guy on his way up, somehow becomes slightly less interested in him on the, on the way down. Now it turns out that isn't always the case. Donald Trump's wives always loved him as a, per, as a person. They were not attracted to, uh, to the money or the fame that went with it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, what, the lawyer made me say that. <laughs> what I also found quite interesting is that I've had a lot of talk on this show about essentially how to be a better version of yourself. And there always seems to be uh, that we, we walk into spiritual territory. 
mm-hmm. and how one has to have a spiritual practice. And if one has a spiritual practice, then one will be more like more compassionate to one towards oneself and towards others. But actually, what I really appreciate appreciate about your book is it wasn't woo-woo and spiritual. There is a place for that, obviously. It was just, just take a look at these examples. But when you were putting this together or when you were coming up with the idea for this, did the spirituality of it all ever become a part of it? Oh, uh, very, very much. Now, um, uh, uh, you know, there's some things that you can reveal in public, I don't like sexual peccadillos or whatever, nobody cares. Uh, but to tell to tell somebody on a live podcast that you have at least six translations of the Bible with with complex commentaries uh, in your home, two of them on the shelves behind me, uh, two more in the uh, uh, kitchen. I have these really nice hanging bookshelves in the kitchen, and 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 the rest are either in the leaky blue bedroom, you know, we're still getting the leak, or the living room. Uh, so yeah, so 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 I'm very very much into that. Um, and this book is sort of like um, you know, if you have a three dimensional object shine a bright light on it, you get a shadow behind it. And the shadow is interesting in itself. So this book is uh, uh, The Art of Fairness. It's purely secular. Um, You could be religious and like it. You could be anti-religious. You could be non-religious. It doesn't really matter. So it's just in the secular realm. Um, Some of the underlying purposes I talk about in the reading guide at the end of the book. Um, And I even quoted very briefly. I'm Jewish, but there's uh, one or two things that a nice Jewish boy said in the New Testament. And one of the things is... um, what does it profit us a man, profit a man, to uh, um, gain a fortune and lose the kingdom of heaven? You know, what does it profit you to gain a fortune? By, in the kingdom of heaven, they didn't just mean like ruling over celestial domain. It means warmth with uh, with friends around, compassion towards yourself, and people respecting and liking you, and you liking and respecting others. And that's a simplified version. So there's these trade-offs. Um, so, so I quote that in, in, in the introduction of the book. So sometimes people want to do this intermediate line because they realize from religious uh, traditions, it's not good otherwise, or they feel there's a spiritual karma uh, they're violating. So it works on all those levels, religious, abstract, spiritual, and on a purely secular level. This feedback, few things happen without consequences. Now it is true that sometimes a horrible person can get away with it all. If you're insulated either by um, uh, usually great wealth, sometimes great beauty or great patronage, people, you can get away with bad behavior. And some people can live to an old age and die with it, with it, uh, that falseness never having been broken, uh, broken against. And they can live within that, those delusions. Again, if you've ever been around a super rich person, it's hard to be normal around them. And you might think of all these things to say, but you tend to like sort of go along or if they have any patronage over you, uh, you know, you laugh at their jokes and uh, stuff like that. So they won't know, they will be clueless. So coming back to this idea of the art of fairness, I did have to wonder, should we have any kind of expectation for fairness? Because if you look at nature, the animal kingdom, it is not a particularly fair place. Cute little baby animals are eaten all the live long day by nasty predators. So why should we have any expectation for fairness amongst us humans? You know, that's a question that a lot of um, uh, uh, people in, uh, not just in business, but in other fields, they'll say, they'll say, look, yes, at Sunday school, we teach these things and we try to tell our children to be different, but the real world, it's really harsh. Um, let success, you know, you have to fight and that's the only way up. And uh, Bertrand Russell once said, that's a lovely ethic for help physically fit young men. Um, it turns out human beings, as you know, that we have another attribute. We can transcend it. We can step above it. We don't have to be limited. We're not just 
bits of rock interacting or bits of hormones thrusting back and forth and stuff, we can be human beings. So um, we can say, you know what? Do we really want to live like that? How about, is there some way of living better? Every now and then you find that uh, archaeologists discover somebody from prehistoric times, a body preserved, where um, somebody say had a, a badly broken arm. But, and the, you could tell from the, the way the bones grow that the arm was broken maybe when they were 18. They lived to 40 or 50, which at those, you know, in Stone Age times to be great old age, they were taken care of by the tribe. That, that compassion can take place. So it's a deep human capacity. Yeah, there, we, we have the substrate of sheer physical reality. It's one reason people often get disappointed when their body decays. They think, I'm more than this. Or if you've ever, have you ever been caught in a bad tide while swimming or anything? I hope yes. not. Yes. Well, okay. not a bad one, but just, you know, wave, a wave kind of spun me around like I was in a washing machine. Yes. And, and, it, and it's overpowering. If you have problems getting up or you sort of get up and the wave spins you again, people I know who've been in that and, and, and survived, they often say, but it's so unfair. I'm actually a decent person and I have goals and purposes. And there's people who uh, I want to care for and people who care for me. And the slamming water doesn't care. It sloshes up because it has, I don't know, water properties, momentum, and then gravity pours it down and it has nothing to do with me. It doesn't care. If you ever saw uh, the film, uh, um, uh, The Fugitive, Tommy Lee Jones, he, somebody says to him, oh, will you do this? He says, I do not care. Keep on saying, I do not care. Um, and so some people are like that. Well, it turns out we have the capacity to go above that. And what the book shows you, we have the capacity to go above that and it can actually be to our advantage not just our spiritual advantage, so that's really important, and not just the advantage of other people, but for our own selfish advantage. So it's sort of, we can use these human capacities for come on, pull together, or come on, let's be warm, or come on, let's help each other, can be really uh, 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 excellent. Uh, there's another project I've been working on, oh, only for about 15 years, on the history of the Ten Commandments. And um, uh, uh, the commandment about uh, uh, parents, it says, honor thy mother and father at one point, and a lot of people think, well, it's kind of sweet, it's kind of namby-pamby. You tell little kids at Sunday school to honor mommy and daddy, of what significance is that? Turns out the Ten Commandments were addressed to adults. And what they were saying there is be, uh, take care of the elderly, the grandparents. Why should that be so important? Think of the model within the family. Uh, uh, if you see um, your parents taking care of the elderly grandparents, maybe making a financial effort or time, then it's kind of the model you pick up on. You're likely to, you know, there's a better chance you'll take care of your parents. Come on, that's, that's what we do in our family. That's what we're like. Now think what that does for the parents. Suppose you're a parent and you have a grandparent and you have a kid below you. You're the parent and you have a choice between you can put some money in a pension just for yourself, Margaret Thatcher, personal pension, or you can help the kids. If you're against private education, it could be, I don't know, nice holidays, or if you're into private education, it could be private education, whatever it is, but you have a fixed amount of money. You can spend a thousand pounds for your pension or a thousand pounds for the kids. If you don't trust the kids, if you think, you know what? They're gonna, I was a selfish git to my parents. They saw me being a selfish git. They're probably gonna be selfish gits towards me. Sod them, I'm not gonna help them. Then you'll put it into your own pension and the cycle repeats. But if you break that, if you like go overboard to people who are to, not to any financial benefit for you. Think of elderly grandparents who can't really get by without the help. You give them the help, your kids, the next generation sees you doing that. Now in the post-war uh, consensus from say 1945 until Thatcher, um, there was a lot of that in society. There was a feeling, you know what? We help old people 
and the next generation will help us. It's really quite beautiful. Instead of a war of everybody against everybody else, sort of cooperation. And you get cooperation by modeling it. So that's the idea behind the fifth commandment. And when it's followed well, it really works. Uh, Better families um, and and better societies. Uh, When it's not done, everything falls apart. And speaking of models, actually, uh, this makes me think about two things we've already spoken about. So the model of what I perceived the media to be like, and this is relevant because when I was at school, I was told that getting a job in the medium was highly competitive and it would be highly unlikely. So I didn't pursue it. And then uh, because I didn't have the grades. And so by the time I actually said, you know what, after university, I'm going to go back and do a postgrad. I was braced and ready to have to fight a real battle to get mm-hmm. a job and to mm-hmm. survive. And looking back now, 20 years later, I realized that that meant that I went in with sharp edges, almost in the brace position. And I viewed the industry through the lens of someone's going to try and take this away. Someone is going to attack me. This is a Mm -hmm. very high risk environment. Mm -hmm. And I wonder when you were putting the book together, the idea of is one of the first steps actually perceiving the world as fair? Is that the first step in you being fair? Rather than having a yeah, thank you. Great question. In fact, I was in a vaguely similar situation. Um, uh, the, the only difference is uh, 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 I, I was involved with the university, but I wasn't involved with what's called. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs, also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be, to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Graduating from the university or finishing the university. So I attended and then I left. So when I was first looking for my jobs, I didn't have a degree. And, um, and, and I, I got a job as a copy boy at a newspaper um, I remember I asked one of the secretaries there, what does copy boy do? I didn't know from journalism. What do copy boys do? She said, there's some things that are sort of just too low and demeaning for a respectable woman to do these days. That's what you'll do. Um, you know, carrying, <laughs> carrying pieces, you know, carrying stuff around when people say, jump, jump, you know, you'll jump. Grunt work. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so the expectation is low. So do you say, so the question is, do we need to start out by assuming the world's fair? And I think if we do, we'll be disappointed. I think what's nice, what's better, is to start out with two things. They they might seem different, but they're actually related. One, start out with feeling that the world's realistic, judging realistically what it's like. So that one job I had, my only job, uh, when I was 21, was at at a newspaper. And there were a handful of people who were total jerks. And they they just didn't like young people around, or they didn't like me, or whatever. And there there was one or two, one and a half people um, who were just really helpful. They they were busy, they'd stop, say, look, you know, come on, I was in your position 20 years ago, I'll help you. 
Everybody else in the middle, they could care less. They honestly, they weren't mean, they weren't helpful, they were just neutral. And that was really good to know. Because I grew up in Chicago, I understood reality. It, it's a city that prided itself on being authentic. You know how like people from Yorkshire or Devon are really obnoxious about it. They're not as not obnoxious as people from Chicago. We say, whoa, you, you, you from Yorkshire, you think you're salt of the earth. Come on, hey, baby, we're salt of the earth. Midwesterners, yeah. Chicago. But you pride yourself on having a realistic view, uh, which doesn't necessarily mean pessimistic, and, but it doesn't mean like naively optimistic. So you need a realistic view, because if, you, if you're too trusting, you'll be disappointed or taken advantage of. But yet along with the realistic view, to do better than the people from Wall Street, or to do better than like Donald Trump's family, it helps if you either have a, a spiritual desire to be decent, or just in your heart of hearts for your own uh, 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 greater satisfaction in life, you wish to be decent. If you combine those two things, uh, uh, really honestly seeing what's there in front of you, just getting a correct lay of the land, reading the terrain correctly, and saying, can I advance in this plausible way? The lessons from the book really apply. You'll get better lines. I asked, I, I have, a, I have a two grown up kids and a little stepson. And I asked my grown up son at one point when he was starting a job in tech, what are the advantages of being a jerk? What are the advantages of being a decent person? There's many advantages to being a jerk. Uh, bullying often works. Remember the old days when people take taxis? Two people go towards a taxi at the same time, and the person who's pushy, they'll get in. Unless you're going to throw them to the ground, uh, the obnoxious person wins. Bullying often works in an office. People say, oh, saw this. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I, I'm not going to fight back. It often works. Subterfuge often works. So there's many advantages. You can make quick decisions without any moral compunction. But there's all the dangers that we saw. Nobody likes you. You don't get gratitude. You get resentment, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't get alliances. Well, the advantages of being decent, it's wonderful. Not only are you happier with yourself, but you get creative teams are a lot better. Uh, information flow is a lot better. Gratitude surges up. You can easily make alliances. People trust you. So if you, if you, so long as you realistically see what's going on and say, you know what? I want to be decent about it. I'm going to apply it with street smarts, with finesse, with skill possibly even with buying Bodanus's book, uh, then, uh, uh, then glory and joy shall be yours. <laughs> Actually, um, I just want to bring it back to Chicago then, because I obviously know Devon and what was the other, Yorkshire. And the only thing I know about Chicago is Oprah Winfrey and the Blues Brothers. I got to say, see, we're so proud of it. And, and I, Oprah Winfrey is great. The Blues Brothers were fabulous. The, the, I should also say, uh, in fairness to Yorkshire, uh, remember in the 2012 Olympics, if Yorkshire had been a country, they would have been like seventh. Chicago, we have a number of good athletes. Hey, Michael Jordan, but, um, but we wouldn't have been uh, sixth or seventh in, in the Olympics. Oh, uh, did you ever go to see the Bulls or have you been over in the UK too long? Oh, I, I've been over in the UK for a very long time. But, but, but it, uh, when the Bulls were doing well, the Chicago basketball team, I was incredibly smug. It's sort of like, you know, when Obama was president, I would tell people here in Britain, do you see who we elected? Do we, do we see? Who? And then when Trump became president, I said, can you believe who they elected? You, so you got to switch it from time to time, just right. Yeah, obviously. I like this. I like this. You know, you know, that's how you conjugate words. I am creative. He is messy. <laughs> um, talk to me a little bit about the role of compassion and empathy in being able to get towards a more fair version of yourself. You know, you can look at it as, um, as a tool or you can look at it as a meaningful. So purely as a tool, if you're going to manipulate somebody, uh, you know, it isn't so much empathy, but you need understanding. So think of a manipulative person from a political, uh, a political campaign who you don't like. 
Um, but they, they'll have to see objectively what makes people respond. Oh, I see. Um, homeowners in the South of England above a certain income level, they're gonna to respond to this argument. Or um, uh, teenage boys, if I want them to buy certain, I, I don't know, um, uh, products, I'll, I'll, um, they'll respond to that. Uh, to, to that message, you know, it's advertising 101. So that's using it for specific purposes. And that's not real empathy, but you need a certain amount of understanding. Somebody who's blank to that, who like has no emotional intelligence would be very poor in that field. There's a deeper level, which ties in with what I thought was that lovely question you asked earlier about spirituality. Why do this? Why do almost anything? Uh, the people who say that they have a totally cold life and they, uh, or they don't say it's cold, they're into advancement of the money, for what purpose? Often they have a waiting audience. It could be either a parent who never appreciated them or a need for adulation from the masses. The sort of person who's often really admirable and kind of sexy is the person who's self-contained, but not in a complacent way, but who isn't desperate. They don't have a little nervous catch to their laugh. It's like, if they laugh, they laugh naturally. You know that phrase about how should you stand? Should you lean forward aggressively? Should you tilt back and fair? How about standing neutrally in the middle? Almost every great musician, if you ask them, you know, how do you play this thing? Should I do overexpression or should I like be extremely cold and austere? They say, well, play the notes, but just, but play it with, with feeling, but, but are, that are accurate for that level. And the thing is, we know what that's like. We, you know, like a, going back to dating time, you know, if you have somebody you're slightly uncomfortable with, you tell your cute stories, they tell their cute stories and it's like, that's fine. But then when things work, time and space disappear. You're just connected. You have that I-thou relationship. You're just connected with the person. And the, the next thing you know is the waiter's going, <clears throat> it's time to leave, it's getting late. And that's a beautiful notion. Now, if you don't care about anything beyond cold worldly success and damn the consequences, there's no reason to ever have those moments. In fact, you will lose the capacity to have those moments. And that's a shame. It is a shame. And it's making me think about an expression that I've, or uh, saying that I actually think has been quite helpful for me as somebody who can be oversensitive. Uh, the expression, the saying, what other people think of you is none of your business is something that I have seen as a positive, but in light of this conversation, actually, I think maybe it could be seen as not so positive. Oh, that's interesting. So tell me when you've heard it, what were people trying to say? Were they saying that you, Emmett, you're, uh, um, uh, harming yourself by being uh, too concerned with people who shouldn't be in your right audience? Or were they saying, by audience, I, I don't mean necessarily for the podcast, I mean in, in general life, or were they saying that um, you're not concerned enough with them? What was the intention behind it? I think the intention is don't worry about what other people think of you, just worry about what you think of you. Mm -hmm. Because if you try to adapt to please other people, then you're getting further away from your true Can be a bit of a doormat. Did you find mm -hmm. that that helped or did it, is there a tendency to overshoot? So, well, if I'm not going to pay any attention to other people, then I can become, you know, this autonomous, you know, the sort of bro, uh, bossy, uh, arrogant type. Did you, did you find that without that, there's not enough of, a, of an anchor or connection? Oh, well, I think I probably like a lot of memes out there. I liked the idea, but the truth of the matter is a hundred people could tell me that they love my podcast and I'm going to remember word for word, the person who says that it sucks. You know, the, so so as much as I like it, because I, I think I would like to be able to execute it. I would like to not be knocked by what other people think. But in the context of this conversation, in the context of the book and the idea of fairness, actually, 
being mindful of what other people think of you and being really honest about what that means about what you're putting out is probably a, a, a useful measure of how to how to treat people and how to not be a jerk. Yeah, it, it is a useful measure. And a lot depends on the people you're getting feedback for. Uh, just to go back with the, the one negative comments and the 99 good comments. So sometimes if somebody has a negative comment because they're obnoxious or they're competitive or they're jealous, sometimes uh, they have a negative comment because, oh, they're a good editor and they know what they're talking about. Like if you rub your hand along a table, the table could be really well done. And if there's a splinter coming up, you notice a splinter and you should notice a splinter. Uh, so it's sort of like, there's some people like redrafts my manuscripts. I really like their feedback. It's, it's my income. I, I need it to get right. And it's actually very useful. Um, and other people are, are, ju are just trying to be uh, just trying to be bitchy. Um, it's sort of like if you have a mentor who always says, Emma, go for it, or David, go for it, that's not helpful. They have to at times to say, you know what? That's not your strength. Or if you do want to go in that area, you have to develop these skills. But if somebody uniformly says yes all the time, it's too open. I suppose the question is how they're negative. I like the idea that when they're negative, they first bow down before me and, and like chant a song about my magnificence, maybe with heralds blowing bugles and stuff. And, and they put it in a lovely engraved parchment on a silver platter. Mm -hmm. Then I will accept it. <laughs> Actually, that brings us really neatly onto something I wanted to ask you about. And it kind of relates to Wall Street a little bit, but I know that you're, you're a business advisor and you go and speak to people. I believe this is from my research, correct me if I'm wrong, because the internet isn't always truthful. And I was really curious, I read recently that a lot of people listening to this podcast, I'm sure will have heard of the idea of giving constructive feedback via a shit sandwich. And you know, you sandwich the, the criticism with two nice bits of information. And I had um, Carol Robin on the podcast recently and she said, oh no, that's just terrible. And this is why, and she, she gave the reasons. But it seems to be that um, there are various traits or character or things that we've been advised to do in recent times, especially in business that we're now discovering aren't useful mm -hmm. and they're actually counter counterintuitive. For example, another one is Chris Voss, the FBI hostage negotiator. If you listen to how he tells you to construct an email, then mm -hmm. you will make small talk. You will not get straight to the point. And yet for many years we've been told just get straight to the point. So if the paper trail if there is a paper trail, then everything is very, very clear. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you see a lot of that when you go into businesses of things that are seen as good practice that are actually really counterproductive. Uh, uh, you're exactly right. And, and, but, and there's an easy way to find out. I think I'm stammering because there's so much to say about it. <laughs> the easy way, uh, it ties back uh, uh, two generations ago, the greatest tennis player in the world, like or three, whatever, long time ago in the 1960s, Rod Laver, I think the great stadium in Australia is named after him. He won Wimbledon twice. And he said, he was a top athlete. He said, here's how you work out if you're fit. What you do is you take your shirt off and stand in front of a mirror. You don't slump, you don't stretch up, you just stand normally. And you can tell, you honestly can tell. Fit, not fit, have you? I spent a lot of time in, 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 in a, a particular gym in East London. And if people ask what the right weight is, you can almost always say, how do you feel? Do you feel a little bit tired and cold and a little bit weak? Or do you feel a little bit heavy and tied up and stuff? The former, too thin, the latter, too heavy. And usually you know. So very often with this feedback, you know. And I think the problem with uh, some of these uh, statements in business is that many of them will apply in certain circumstances, but not all. There's a time, uh, you know, that song, there's a time to sow, there's a time to reap, but from Ecclesiastes. 
um, there's a time when you really get, get straight to the point. If you have 30 emails coming in, you don't want to chit chat. You want to, it's quicker and more polite to get straight to the point. There's times when you want to establish a relationship. So which one's true? And the answer is sadly, it depends. Uh, the reason I, I did the book with the 10 quite different examples, I, I made a point of having an outgoing personality, a quiet person, a sour person, a friendly person, really having a, a, a range of, uh, of people, is that you can see there's no one size fits all. So I think sometimes in business, especially on a lower level, there's this desperation. Can I find the magic tool that will always work? I suppose somebody has dating problems. You tell your friend, well, here's what you do. And you ask them, what's their favorite story? They say, oh, this is a great story. Well, the thing is, if their great story might be oh, this fun they had with their cat and the, the warmth and the bonding, and you meet somebody whose cat just died, you know, and maybe don't tell that story. It might, it might not be the ideal thing if they say, oh, and I did the last thing I saw is my cat going around and around under the wheel of the large lorry. Okay. And maybe, you know, so it would be a painful thing to bring up. So the same thing with these, uh, with these principles. So listen to them. They usually come with some plausibility, but don't be dogmatic about them. Indeed, if somebody was obsessed with the Ten Commandments, they might say, don't make an idol out of them. You can respect them, but don't idolize them. To be honest, it works even further in relationships. Uh, if somebody idolizes you, it's kind of scary. And people, uh, after a certain age, you become wary of that. Because the thing is, you know, a few of us are worthy of, uh, of idolatry. Um, and then there's only disappointment. To respect and like is very different. By the way, the commandment about uh, parents doesn't say love your parents. It's a, it's a noble thing to love your parents, but it can't always be done. It can't be done all the time. It says honor. Honor is very different. Honor is very plausible. And you might go above and beyond the call of duty, but it's a nice minimum. Mm. Oh, a nice minimum. I like that. Okay. Um, oh. No, no, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, because I, uh, I see a mirror in the background. And uh, if you have the minimum of honoring, it, uh, clearly if somebody you're living with, if people you're really close with, it's great to love them. But if the minimum is honoring, you don't go below them, it becomes a good habit. And there's one person that we sometimes fall below that to. I was mentioning Rod Laver in the mirror, and that's ourselves. Uh, usually, often women, but sometimes men. Um, uh, some people will stand in front of the mirror and they'll look at themselves and they'll be really critical. Oh, I'm doing the makeup. God, I'm so ugly. Oh, it looks terrible. They would never say that to their best friend. They would never say to their best friend. And to be honest, they're unlikely to think that about their best friend. The friend, suppose one day you go to the mirror and you have a big zit on your nose. You don't have a zit on your nose, so I can say this, it's an abstract thing. I'm an expert with having had zits on my nose. Okay, I go to the mirror and have a zit on my nose. I might think, ugh, disgusting. But if I have to see a friend with a zit on their nose, it's like, nah, it's not that, it's not that major an issue. So how about not being just wildly negative to ourselves also? It doesn't mean to be indulgent and sing a little happy, cheerful song to ourselves every morning, but it means not maybe going below that minimum of, how about if you respect every human being? You can't be active and vivid about it, but if you're tempted to go below that, there are times for self-defense, et cetera, where you have to go to extremes, but otherwise try to be reasonable. God, that sounds banal, but as we know, it's difficult to carry it through. Yeah, and be be fair to yourself is a really good message to, like if you're reading this book and you're practicing, right, I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to see fairness and I'm going to be fairness, um, you've got to start, as you say, in the mirror in the morning. And it's great. And again, it doesn't mean letting everything go. It, it might be um, you want to put like a, a large Zorro face mask on if you have a, a, a sufficiently large zit on your nose. Or in my case, it can illuminate through it with a black flint or light. But then you can get a role as Rudolph, you know, and they can, you get extra income streams coming in. It's important to diversify these days. But you're right. Be reasonable. 
You said something there as well about uh, you deliberately profiled 10 different people who who don't fit the mold. And I think it would be quite easy to think fair, nice, decent people. You know them when you come across them as if they all, you know, you they're like a beautiful gem, but they're all they all are the same. The fact that you said, you know, you've got the guy who is grumpy, the the sourpuss, the, they're not all fundamentally 100 percent to their core good people well, good people is probably the wrong way of putting it, but the, the decent person that you might expect a fair good person to look like. Totally. They're not, they're not like a, a, a Aryans from California named Biff, <laughs> you know, who have a lot of talc. And when they shake your hands, like, is that Emma? And they repeat it, you know, because they were told to from the Harvard Business Review. It, it's human beings. And what's nice is that it suggests the possibility, not a perfectibility within uh, all of us, but of, of decency. I, again, my expectations are, if your expectations are too high, you're going to be disappointed. If they're too low, you become kind of negative. And the, you know, why do you even exist? Have, have, have plausible expectations. And occasionally you can surprise yourself. Yes, occasionally you can surprise yourself. Now you also, I'm very fascinated with, with courses because as I just mentioned a little while ago, I had Carol Robin on who teaches the interpersonal dynamics course at Stanford Graduate Business School. And that's now a legendary course, but you also have a course that became semi-mandatory the intellectual mm -hmm. toolkit and was fun. I really wanted you to explain to me what that was and why it became such a an incredible course that became semi-mandatory at Oxford yeah yeah um so what it was is I I, I was uh, I was looking for a wife um and uh, I'd been living in London and I, I met all sorts of like you know really cool glamorous people but they you know not all of them were that trustworthy so I thought if I went to Oxford I could um, I, I could meet somebody who would be you know like you know, like trustworthy and if they were also hot they would be great um, and uh, uh, you know everybody needs a motivation uh, that was part of it the other motivation is being a writer talking about writing is easy you go to a cafe and you talk with other people being a writer you sit by yourself in a room and you write so it was getting you know isolated so this is the more serious answer and I wanted just some some feedback and uh, connections so I wanted to move from London to Oxford I thought I could get. You know, just I know there'd be some snobby people there, but a lot of you know nice, intelligent people get some feedback. So I started, um, uh, and I was delighted because I didn't have any qualifications. Uh, but I managed to, uh, um, uh, with charm, uh, get my way in to begin teaching. By the way, a little footnote: if you want to get your foot in the door to almost any position, don't be greedy. So the first term I taught, I said, "How about if I do it for free? It's for free, and you have nothing to lose." And then if it's good and they get positive feedback, then your foot's in the door, you're connected, you could do more. So that was it. So I began to teach the course um, and, and, and I really enjoyed it. And I tried to do two things to make it interesting. One is something that I personally care about. And I love the idea that you could get like extra glasses or seven league boots. You can get a, you can get a jump on things if, you have, um, if you're not starting from scratch. So suppose, um, uh, so if, if, you, if I walk into a jungle, I know, I know from nothing about jungles, but David Attenborough walks into a jungle. He has all these wonderful insights. And there's some people, they'd walk into a room and they're really good, not a, not a weird twisted shrink, but somebody who really understands human behavior and stuff, like a good novelist or someone. They would look around and they'd have a real sensitive understanding or a good, a kindly vicar or spiritual leader. And I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to look at the world through the lenses or visions of these different people? What's it like looking through the world the way, um, a good uh, sociologist would? Or what's the way of looking at the world the way somebody really understands history and the big ways of history goes? Or looking at the world through the way somebody who understands you know, uh, psychology and our ups and downs in life, 
what if you could put on the glasses of that person and look at the world through that lens? It means you would get a terrific boost. You wouldn't be starting from scratch. You'd be getting their advantage. So I thought, aha, what if I offer that? Um, and so I offered that and uh, they said, no. Uh, so uh, uh, Bodanis is being nothing if not persistent. I offered it to somebody else and they said, yes. And I was really happy. And, the, and it went and everybody liked it. So what was, so how do you do that? How do you allow people to look through the world, look at the world through someone else's lens? I tried to set up a problem that somebody had and then how they solved it, how they, you know, what were they concerned with? And then, and then what could be some of the insights that they could do? So, so a, a standard one is Freud. Sigmund Freud, the notion that we're, we have these surging subconscious underneath. And if we say something, um, it often is based not on our rationality, but on these really profound pushes uh, that come out in some way. So I looked a little bit at Freud's life. Everybody likes stories and I enjoy stories. Um, so I mean, you know, tell a story about, you know, why was Freud the way he was? Uh, what were the impulses surging up in him? One time when he was engaged, he wrote to his wife, brace yourself, the wild crazed hairy monster is going to come because he was a cocaine addict and cocaine actually, you know, often increases sexual urges. So they had a lot of fun. Um, so he knew, and you know, you're not supposed to be there. There's a respectable doctor in the 1880s in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So he knew that there could be these surges coming up. He was Jewish of a generation that was about, I think, the second generation being a, a, allowed into a, a wider uh, Austro-Hungarian uh, society and stuff. And he knew that many of the people who seemed normal around him had real anger, like really upsets and fury, I say, at his father. He remembered a story one time he was walking down the street with his father when Freud himself was a little boy, and this anti-Semite knocked the father's hat off his head, kind of challenged him, gonna do something about that? You wanna fight about that? So the father had to be humiliated, lift up the cap, walk along. So that's the text. The subtext, the guy who knocked the hat off, he had a lot of surges of anger. Could be religious, righteous indignation or whatever it was from. And the father, even though he walked off breathing steadily, was probably like embarrassed, humiliated in front of his son. So Freud was highly aware that on the surface, we manifest one thing, but underneath we manifest another. So I would like begin a talk by um, uh, warming the audience up, or the audience, sorry, the, the proper students of this distinguished university, uh, warming, warming them up with this, motivating them, and then say, okay, well, you know, how did he do it? What was this thing underneath that he brought out? Almost, there's a, a handful of concepts that are complex, but most concepts they're not, so long as you understand why people got into them. So really, it is just a case of, do you think, and from the book and the profiling of these 10 people and from that course, do you think that stepping into other people's shoes is a really good way to navigate, to uh, set your own compass and navigate the world, just to understand totally. as many perspectives as possible? Oh, totally, totally, totally. And often you're really happy to come back to your shoes. I mean, one of the advantages of, of love is you can enter the other person's world and really feel for it. And love is easy when the other person is, is aiding you or is in, in a positive thing. Love can be very uh, powerful when the other person is either uh, negative or sad or hurt. Suppose you come home and you feel fine. You're with somebody you love. It could be a, a partner, it could be a child, it could be a parent, doesn't really matter. And they're not in that positive mood you are. And instead of being irritated by them or just on the surface having to deal with them, oh, a cup of tea will make them happy or listen to that. What if you can really feel for what they feel? You can really, really feel. Uh, Stephen King talked about it in his story, The, the Green Miles, made the film with Tom Hanks. There's this guy 
who heard other people's feelings, but he heard them too intensely. It was Stephen King, so there were all sorts of twists in the story. But when occasionally in our life, we have that. Now, the thing is, because we have to get by ordinary life and there's so much going on, this booming, buzzing confusion around us, we can't be open to that intensity of feelings all the time. I don't know, do you ever see this film called Jesus of Montreal? It was a French Canadian film, absolutely lovely from a few decades ago. And as a beautiful stop-up mantra of Pergolesi playing through, and uh, would sound maybe a bit pretentious, but it was about a, a theater troupe in, in French Canada in, in contemporary times. And at one point, one of the characters near the end of the film, uh, he becomes too intense. He really, really feels, not that he becomes Jesus, but he, he feels the intensity of somebody else's pain. And we can't live like that. We can't walk down the street feeling all that uh, uh, all the time. However, if we never do that, we're kind of animals. Uh, one of the uh, characters that I, uh, I, I have a paragraph in the book, he was originally going to be the title of the book and the whole chapter ended up as just a paragraph. That's kind of sad, but that's what editing does. And the ancient uh, Jewish rabbi Hillel, he lived around the time of Jesus, about 2000 years ago. And uh, remember I said that, you know, if you're too soft, it doesn't work. If you're too hard, you don't have to be like that. What's the line in between? And I got it a little bit from a famous phrase he said. There's many ways of translating it, but roughly it's something like this. If I'm only for myself, uh, what am I? That is, if I'm such a selfish git that I'm only for myself, ugh, am I some sort of animal? Like, ooh, I can get money and I can get food and like, a guy might hire prostitutes. And But what are you? You're some sort of creature, beast. If I'm only for myself, what am I? But then you go like, but if I'm not for myself, who am I? If you're not for yourself at all, if you're utterly passive before what everybody wants, there's this great guy, I'll, I'll act like this and he'll really like me. Or there's this great woman, I'll act like this and she'll really like me. If you're not for yourself, who are you? You're a doormat, you've lost yourself. So the thing, if I'm, if I'm only for myself, what am I? Some selfish beast. If I'm not for myself, who am I? You've lost yourself. There's gotta be a line in between. You can see there must be some sort of twisted, Freudian thing about lines in between when I was a little kid. I keep on trying to find them. Actually, you know what? I was just making a joke about it, but there actually is something deep there. Uh, my father passed away when I was 10. And I think I've spent a certain amount of my life looking for standards or uh, uh, guiding principles. I've written books about Einstein, this wise man who understood the guiding principles behind things. I'm writing about the Ten Commandments, these deep principles around us. In the book, The Art of Fairness, I'm trying to pretend to say, what's the guiding line in between? And maybe if I had had a sort of a particular guide when I was younger, I wouldn't be looking for such a line, but as it is, I am. Oh, that's so, it's quite moving. <laughs> I, I, I've reached an age of, a, I'm a perfect cube, 64. So it's uh, four times four times four. My son is, a, a, he's also a perfect cube, three times three times three is 27. <laughs> and uh, it's not gonna happen again. I ain't reaching the next cube, uh, which would be 125. Um, so I tell, you know, if you can't get at least some self-understanding of 64, what, uh, when can you? Well, I'm going to uh, end this conversation on something that I didn't necessarily think I would be unpicking with you, but it's just because of something that you said about um, having empathy and understanding other people's point of views and walking in other people's shoes in order to better navigate the world as, as the person that you truly are. And I'm sure you, Twitter, social media, and there's been this whole debate recently about how vile a, a cesspit of uh, place that it is, 
how the anonymity of it can allow people to be really horrible and not see other people's perspective. And I just wondered, is it kind of the polar opposite of what you're suggesting that life should be? Is that instead of spending any time in people's shoes, we're just reacting to cutting off and just being negative and just not accepting. That's what I see Twitter as being is just, hey, this is my opinion. And someone saying, how dare you? You're so wrong because you haven't thought of mine. And there's no, where's the middle room? Totally. So, so there's some settings that encourage um, both good behavior and also a better output and some settings that don't. You know, if you're trying to work out a decision where a bunch of people are going to like, I don't know, go for dinner together again in the ages when you could go out to dinner, it's best if you have a certain small number decide. You can't, or if you're trying to work out how to order for 12 friends or 15 friends sitting around a table, it's really hard to do it unless you have a simple, clear rule. Okay, everybody's going to choose one main course, one dessert, or you know what? we're going to choose, we're going to choose six vegetarian, three meat like that. So you need a certain, there's certain settings where, which don't work. So 15 people randomly trying to work out dinner doesn't work. 15 people randomly working out, trying to go, do we go to the cinema? Do we go to the, somebody's house? That doesn't work. Twitter does not work very well to get, imagine trying to build a bridge or build an airplane engine on Twitter. It would be inconceivable. Ha, I don't, how dare you say you want that piston turbine to be like that? I, my piston, you know, it'd be stupid. Or like, uh, imagine like Jesus developing like a, a nice calm conversation, trying to work forward, trying to develop the Sermon on the Mount, but you get all these interruptions and these insults and insults to the insults, it wouldn't get there. So there's some settings that don't help. It's one reason that it's, uh, it's incredibly admirable when people grow up in really rough settings, extreme poverty or violence, that instead of like being cascaded and bounced around and losing the ability to recenter and have perspective, um, they don't get buffeted and they manage to find the center and build up something positive. It's hard, it's easier in a, in a more stable environment. So some environments aren't really conducive to our better parts. Um, now is staying away from them being an ostrich and ignoring what's important or can one create, focus more on other areas so you can build up positive things. One of the positive things, I, I spent a certain amount of time at this gym in East London with, uh, with, with a number of like friends in their twenties who are into various political activism. And I've been delighted at least uh, in the South of, South of England and I, I think more widely, a number of uh, young adults, they genuinely want to get something done. They genuinely want to not just posture and show off. Clearly, people want to do that. People have been doing that for thousands of years. On Twitter, you can do it in a large, uh, in like an, in an invisible amphitheater. But a number of people, they want to effectively get things done, not Dominic Cummings style, pulling strings behind the back, but by working with others in, in, in a decent way. I found the people who are, do that tend to be most satisfied. Also, the ones who are something like, say, actors or graphic designers, they also tend to be the ones who, if there's a scholarship coming up or a, a, a contract coming up, they often share that with their friends rather than fight against their friends. And the result is, what do they get back? They get reciprocity. It's like people are likely to give them, go be helpful to them. So if one gets away from the worst part of social media and maybe uses it to build up groups that are not nasty and not attacking the U.S. Capitol and not vilifying others, but are maybe it's like, I don't know, helping housebound people in your neighborhood or working on a political global scale thing that you like, you'll probably be more satisfied. And there'll be a time when you have to do the really weird thing if you have phone calls or face-to-face -face interaction with human beings. <laughs> yes, there is that. Who knew that you would also um, 
if, you need to consult at Twitter. I think this is it. Come up with a new way of doing it, which would be great. And it's um, not not beyond the realm of possibility, given everything else that you do. David, I have loved chatting to you. What an incredible body of work and what a lovely resource to be able to come back to you time and time again of fairness and this idea of actually uh, being a decent person. You don't need to be spiritual. You don't need to be born that way. It might be hard, not hard work. It might be work, but it's work worth doing. It's such a lovely idea. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Listeners, the links to David, the book, and everything that we have discussed where there are links will be in the show notes. But for now, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for listening. I do hope you enjoyed that conversation with David and me. If you would like to get in touch with me and I would love to hear from you, email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can always DM me on Instagram and Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns or you can join the Facebook group. The link to join us in the show notes which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and it's where you'll find me chatting away with thousands of fellow listeners of this podcast. So please don't be shy, come and join us. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you on the next one. <laughs>